You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 471, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Isruff. Hey, Gemma. Welcome back from Ruby Kaigi. I am so excited to hear basically your field report. How was the conference? Thank you so much. Yeah, Kaigi is so different than other conferences I go to. So it's interesting to go be at it and to experience such a different way of a conference working. So I've never been. I did see that there were 1,200 attendees, which I don't know what the final count for RailsConf was, but there's no way it was 1,200. It just, it feels like it was a sellout. It seemed like there was a lot of FOMO. It looked like a place to be. So how is Kaigi <laughs> different than most like Ruby and Rails conferences? First of all, to the 1,200 point, it definitely felt like it was bigger this year than last year. But one of the key differences I think about Kaigi is in the talk content for the most part, and also what happens outside of the talks, I think is quite different. At a RailsConf or RubyConf, at least as far as I've experienced, there's much more of a hallway track, people just coming up to you who you might not know, having random conversations very willy-nilly, whereas Kaigi is less like that. Like For instance, if you give a talk, you're less likely to get many questions afterwards, whereas a RubyConf or a RailsConf, you kind of get swarmed as you leave the stage, no matter what your talk was. And then the talks at Kaigi are really focused on technical content and a lot of focus on how Ruby itself is being built, which means that outside of Kaigi, we also have conversations about things we want to change about Ruby or things we want to do. The conversations we do have tend to be with regards to how to continue to improve Ruby. Do you think some of that split is because the conference is split between English and Japanese speakers? The language barrier is definitely a big part of it. So they have live Japanese to English translation for any Japanese talks, which is super, super impressive how quick it is. But you're still at obviously a little bit of a delay, which is interesting too, because you'll hear laughter and then you'll hear the joke in a few seconds. So what was your intent on going to the conference? What was your goals going into it? The biggest goal for me was with respect to YARP, the parser project I've been working on. We have been talking to the core committers. The Ruby core committers are the team who work on Ruby and have commit bits so they can approve or merge things. We've been talking to them all along throughout the development of YARP. And our goal with this conference was to really get their alignment on merging it. And so they actually had a meeting, the core developers, at day zero of the conference, which was fun to go to. Oh, that's awesome. One thing that we touched upon at the RailsConf podcast panel, which we had Justin Searles on, he talked about how he was going to go to Ruby Kaigi and he was going to have a field report. And so you can access that testdouble.com slash field. And I subscribed to it. It was actually really great to be able to see what was going on in real time and not having to be on Twitter and Mastodon to figure out what was going on. So I appreciated that insight. One thing I didn't know is that they like really hardcore celebrate the committers during that conference. Like they wear special shirts and like a badge, right? Yeah, they're definitely, there is a bit of a celebrity feel. I know we'll talk about the committers in the world session in a bit, but there was a part of that where they're like, okay, now everyone take a photo of the committers on stage, which I think does put a little bit of a, literally them on a pedestal. In a way that would be unfamiliar to us in the US. Yeah, I think we would only be familiar with it because it used to be there was that old Ruby Hero Award ceremony they used to do at like RailsConf and RubyConf. I mean, that's a little bit before my time and I have no idea if they'll ever resurrect that again, but that is definitely a very different approach. 
I did want to touch upon Matt's keynote. So my understanding, he always opens up Ruby Kaigi and we just passed 30 years of Ruby. How did that keynote go? Did anything get announced? What was going on there? Yeah, so he did give, because it was 30 years, he gave a bit of a history of Ruby, which was quite interesting to learn about and understand. And he tried to kind of highlight the lessons that he had learned through the entire development of Ruby. Interestingly, in the past, sometimes I've seen him kind of tease new features a little more where Ruby was going. This time he did that in the Committers in the World session, but the keynote was much more focused on looking backwards and what he could learn from that. I always wonder if he put a ton of pressure on himself by doing committing to Ruby 3 by 3 for Ruby 3. It just... I felt like the community was very aggressive about wanting to hit that goal, which I thought was great. But I always wondered if he felt like a personal responsibility to make sure that 3 by 3 came into fruition. Yeah, I hope he did. I think part of a leader's responsibility is inspiration. And I think especially pushing boundaries far. And so I think setting goals that seem far out or seem far reaching, but are really aligned with his vision is definitely a big part of his responsibility as the leader of Ruby. Now, one thing that he talked about that I am actually very relieved to hear is that he talked about during the 4.0 transition that they were going to use it as like a test bed for potential leadership models in case he ever departs from Ruby. I'm kind of relieved that some thought is going into that because I don't think that Matt's equals Ruby. Of course, he created it, but it should be able to live on. Yeah, he spoke about that at the Committers in the World session, which was interesting. There was a little talk about the next version of Ruby and then someone said 3.4 and then potentially Ruby 4. And so I was actually moderating that session and I said, is it going to be Ruby 4 afterwards? And that was when he spoke a little about trying to pass on his benevolent dictator for life role to someone else. It sounded like he was thinking about retirement somewhere in the future and wants to make sure that continuity is definitely there for Ruby. Well, let's get into the Ruby committers versus the world. I think that is just absolutely so cool that you were the moderator for that. How did that opportunity come up? And was this a brand new session for Kaige? Yeah, so in the past, there's always been a Ruby committers versus the world session that's been sponsored by Cookpad. And this year, Shopify sponsored it where I work. And so my manager asked me if I would be interested in moderating it. We renamed it actually to Ruby Committers and the World. I think Versus had a little bit of antagonism in it that was potentially not necessary. And so the way that session works is it's mostly focused on discussing core committers' wishes for Ruby 3.3 or for the next version of Ruby and leaving them the space to have conversations about things that might be a little contentious or talk through parts that they're really thinking about. And there are two main goals. One is to allow space for the audience to interact with core committers all on a stage like that. Like I said, people don't really have the same kind of hallway track. So having core committers all together is a good opportunity to interact with them. And the other is to give core committers the opportunity to talk about what they're hoping, what they're working on. Some will even do a pitch like, hey, I'd like help with this or something like that while they share what they're working on. How was the audience question starting that? It was good. So that was one room for growth of mine. I thought was managing time a little better there. So I was hoping to get more time for audience questions and I could have or should have cut off a few conversations potentially to leave more time for audience questions at the end. 
did they do a good job of like passing it amongst the committers? And did they always know which committer was going to be the best one to ask question? Basically, were you aiming questions to specific committers? Because I saw a picture that Ufu tweeted out. There were a lot of committers on stage, which is pretty exciting. There are a lot of committers for sure. We only got to a couple audience questions. That wasn't the focus. The main focus was I had asked in advance all the core committers. Usually they put up a slide and I had asked just for topics, subtopics under big topic headers. And so we went through all those slides and they would discuss, whoever had put up a point would discuss the point under that slide. So for instance, there was a slide about YJIT and Maxime and Coco Boone and Aaron spoke on YJIT and Alan all spoke about what they think for the future of YJIT and what's coming next there. Oh, awesome. Okay, you're going to need to explain this to me. So in Ruby 3.3, supposedly, we would have the new universal parser and YARP, right? So yeah, like kind of explain that to the audience just because it feels like we've got two projects that might be doing the same thing. I'm curious which one at this point will be the default and if we know that. Yeah, so that was a big part we wanted to accomplish at that day zero meeting was get that understanding. Actually, the thing we really wanted to understand was whether YARP would be merged within Ruby 3.3 because we've been working on it, but it's not technically under the Ruby namespace or under Ruby itself. And the core team could at some point say, hey, we actually don't want this, at which point our work would have been useful in that it, it would have taught us a lot, but not actually produce something that we were using. So a big thing we accomplished at that meeting was that they said they would merge it. And then the thing that we are still waiting to learn more about is whether it'll be the only parser in the future. I think in this first release, it potentially makes sense to have two because it'll be a good test bed for Yarp. But I totally agree that that's not a great user experience. And in an ideal world, we would just have one and Yarp would be ready for that. But so Matt hasn't yet made a decision or made a call on which one it'll be eventually. We don't have benchmarks for Yarp yet because we haven't merged it. So we haven't measured it. Once we do, hopefully it'll be more obvious which parser is better and which parser to keep for the long run. Okay. So basically there's been a unanimous decision that the old parser will get deprecated. So that's going for sure. And now there are two parsers that are up for debate as to which one will become the default. So in 3.3, either the new universal parser or YARP will be the default. And it sounds like it would be the universal parser with the option to use YARP at this point. Yeah, it's a little more convoluted than that. The new universal parser is basically an update on the old parser. So it's not as substantial of a change as YARP. It's more of just like continued development on the thing that already exists. And then YARP introduces an entirely new way of parsing called recursive descent parsing, which is separate than what the existing parser does. Okay. Thank you for answering all of my questions because I find (laughs) this stuff so fascinating. So we learned a lot from you whenever you opened the proposal and then ultimately made the change around object shapes. So at what stage is YARP at? Are we at proposal stage where you have a separate repository for where you're working on YARP? And that will be eventually a pull request. Can you explain what stage we're at with YARP? How that works. Yeah. So we have a separate repository under the Shopify namespace at Shopify slash YARP and Truffle Ruby and JRuby, which are two other Ruby implementations, have already been using it. I think we are up to maybe 29 different contributors on that repo. So people are really interacting. And if you're curious, that's a great place to go. 
we got approval to start mirroring it into Ruby. So all of the standard library repos like IRB or CSV or something like that are actually standalone repos that get mirrored into Ruby. So they exist not under Ruby Ruby, but under, I don't know, Ruby slash CSV or something like that. And then they get mirrored regularly. So Yarp will migrate to the Ruby namespace so that it exists under Ruby Yarp. And then we'll begin mirroring it into Ruby Ruby. And then there's a bit of code we have to write there to integrate it properly and ensure it is outputting the right instruction sequences in the format that Ruby Ruby wants to Okay, awesome. Might name this episode Ruby Ruby. <laughs> Probably <laughs> well, but that, and that just sounds really fun. This episode is brought to you by Honey Badger. Monitoring, like web development, can be complicated. There are tons of tools and techniques, but you just want to know that your app is up and running and that your customers are happy. When your customers encounter a problem, you need clear, actionable intelligence, not walls of charts and reams of logs to tail. That's why we built Honey Badger, the monitoring tool we have always wanted. A tool that's where you need it, when you need it, and it gets out of your way when you don't, so you keep shipping. With Honey Badger, you can know when critical errors occur and which customers are affected. You can respond instantly when your systems go down. You can improve the health of your systems over time. And of course, fix problems before your customers can report them. Honey Badger is the application health monitoring tool built for you, the developer who cares about a quality product and happy customers. Start monitoring today at honeybadger.io. Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Once again, that is honeybadger.io. Link is in the show notes. I'd like to step back and just talk about, you know, the last time that we had you on and we were talking about what you were working at Shopify, you were just getting started on working on Yarp. So how many team members are working on it? How's progress been? How's this been different than object shapes? I'd love to hear your experience. Yes, super different experience. So Kevin Newton has been leading the charge on Yarp. He was the one who wanted to do it and pushed for it and started on it at the beginning. And then I jumped onto it with him, but he and his wife recently had a baby. And so he's been on parental leave. So at the moment, it's just me, but he'll be back soon. And then, yeah, we've actually been working pretty closely with some folks at GitHub too. Adam Hess and Halden have also been working with us. And so I meet with them about once a week and talk through their contributions and what they're working on. And then some folks from JRuby and Ruby are working pretty steadily on integrating it. And other folks within Shopify will also once in a while make pull requests or touch base or things like that. So it is fun in that it's quite a wide group of people at a few different companies which I think is a lot of the goal for how open source should work, especially for something that'll be as hopefully universally used as a parser. Is that unusual for JRuby and TruffleRuby to adopt something ahead of MRI? I think it's unusual in that there's usually not overlap because they're different implementations. But one of the big goals with the parser is that it will be adopted by everyone. And so... The rationale for that is then when there's a change to parsing or parsing needs to be maintained in some way, each implementation doesn't have to make its own updates, but it just happens in one central place that then keeps all the implementations up to date and also bug free. Because what happens right now is you have bugs on the corner cases between different implementations or different parser rights. Like for example, RuboCop uses its own parser, not the C Ruby one. And so it has to stay up to date with that, for instance, or a sorbet or many of the static tools we use, use different parsers. 
You mentioned earlier that we don't have performance benchmarks for YARP yet, but I imagine that is going to be an important part of actually making it the default. Is there a process at Shopify that you use in order to performance benchmark, or is that something that you need to do within the Ruby committer team? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that'll be Ruby committer focused. And the reason we don't have it is interesting, actually, because we can parse fully into a parse tree, but we do optimizations at different points than Ruby Ruby than C Ruby already does. So C Ruby, for example, calls the parse tree a little, so it doesn't have all of the nodes in the parse tree. First of all, it just has different nodes because its setup is different, but also it cuts some off that are irrelevant at early phases, whereas Yarp doesn't do that. And so benchmarking them is comparing apples and oranges. So the thing we really want to benchmark is not to the point of parsing, but to the point of that parsed tree becoming compiled instruction sequences right before optimizing those instruction sequences. That's where we want to compare because that's an apples to apples fair comparison. And in order to compare at that point, we need to have created the instruction sequences, which require us to be mirroring and have access to Yarp within the Ruby namespace. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And it occurs to me like the very infamous book within the Ruby community, Ruby Under the Microscope, when if when Yarp becomes the default, like that book is officially deprecated because it goes into very intimate detail around how the current parser works. And so it'll be very interesting to see who takes the lead on, if somebody takes the lead on documenting that in a new book. Yeah, I love that book. I think it's already officially deprecated. It's about Ruby 1.9, I think, or something like that. And yeah, I think most, while very interesting and definitely an interesting history, I think most parts are unfortunately already out of date, such that if you read that book and assumed it was the source of truth, you would be very wrong, which is part of the difficult side of writing about software. Yeah, you definitely know that more than anyone, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wrote a short ebook and it's already out of date. Definitely. <laughs> so stepping back and just looking at 2023, Gemma, you're someone who has gone to a lot of conferences. I feel like you went from like zero to 100. And so, (laughs) so I'm just curious, like what conferences for you, are you getting the best bang for your, not necessarily buck, but like in terms of all the effort that it takes to put together a panel, a talk, all the travel at this point, what conferences are you getting the most value from? I think Taigi is an extremely high value conference because we get to talk with the core committers and we're doing a lot of work outside of the talks themselves. So that feels incredibly high value in terms of actually pushing forward work. I think in terms of community and community role, ones that have many more WMB.RB members feel really productive and exciting to me. And then in terms of actually bang for buck on talks, I think something that worked well for me last year was I was iterating on a talk about object shapes that I would update for each conference based on the progress since the last conference. I think I gave that talk maybe three times. And so it was less of, oh, I'm putting in all this time for one conference and more of I'm able to give this multiple times. And so I was even thinking the talk I just gave at Kaigi was the first time I gave it. And I was thinking I should maybe apply with that talk to other conferences. I agree. Can you tell us a little bit about the talk you gave at Kaigi? Yeah, sure. It was tips and tricks for developing in CRuby. So if you want to actually contribute to Ruby itself, how you do that and how you think about it and how to make your dev setup a little easier. Nice. That's kind of like a different talk for you, right? Because 
Your talks tend to be very technical. You do bridge the gap well of talking very technical and accessible. I know you've done partner talks. I know you've done like deep dives into code. Like how was this talk the same or different? Yeah. So I've done, I think my first actual conference in-person talk was a partner talk. And since then they haven't been, but this one felt different in some ways. And it actually felt really similar in others. I think someone came up to me after the talk a day or two afterwards and said, that was the most accessible I've heard contributing to CRuby framed as. And that was a lot of the hope. So I think in terms of taking a technical or seemingly difficult topic and hopefully making it more accessible, it was pretty aligned with the talks I've done in the past. But I think the difference here is it wasn't something I was actively working on. It was something I worked with, knew well from working with, but not from creating in any way. Does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. Do you have any idea what your conference schedule is looking like for the rest of the year? I have some exciting news, which is I was asked to keynote RubyConf Thailand. So yeah, that's definitely on the docket in October. And then hopefully I'll go to RubyConf in November. Demo, that's so exciting. What an awesome pick. Way to go, RubyConf Thailand. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have any idea what you will talk about? I have things floating around my head, but definitely nothing fully formed yet. It's interesting because I love giving technical talks so much, but I wonder if this state, a bigger stage or a keynote stage is more of a place to give a community slash technical talk or something there or something less. Most of my talks so far are very specific to a project or something I'm working on. And it seems like keynotes for the most part are a little more general. Mm-hmm. And so... I've been thinking through that. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts for how to think about a keynote talk? Yeah, I really like when a keynote talk has some technical aspects to it. So I almost wonder if an expansion of your Kaigi talk with some community aspects into it would be well received, especially since you got the feedback that was the most accessible they had heard about contributing to CRuby. And I think just overall, the community is still not clear on how that works and everything. So I think that would be very well received. But that being said, you do incredible work with WNB. So like that also, I think would be really well received. You are lucky in the sense that you have many talents and have a lot of things that you could talk about that would go really well. Yeah, thanks. Something I'm also thinking about is I've never been to RubyConf Thailand before. So I don't really know that community. And I don't know the way I could say, for example, the differences between Kaigi and RubyConf in the US and what would make a good keynote at each. I don't really know about RubyConf Thailand. So I think I also, if any listeners have thoughts there, I am definitely all ears into what the community is like at RubyConf Thailand. What would be the best way for listeners to reach out to you, Gemma? At the moment, I haven't been great on Twitter. So email probably. It's just my name at gmail.com. Okay, awesome. We'll link that up in the show notes and hopefully you don't receive too much spam. (laughs) (laughs) I have good filters in place. So spam won't get through to me. So before we wrap, I'm curious, like any particular talks at Ruby Kaigi that whenever the videos come out, the listeners should definitely check out. Really enjoyed Stan Lowe's talk on building a Ruby debugger. I think debugging is a tool we hopefully mostly all use very regularly. Our debuggers are tools we we mostly use very regularly and oftentimes don't stop to think about how they work or how they could be improved or even switching to different tools. So like using the Ruby debugger as opposed to IRB or prior, things like that. And Stan goes a little more in his talk behind the scenes into how that works and how you could, I think the talk was called build a 
mini Ruby debugger in under 300 lines of code or something like that. So by, I think what was so smart about his talk is by walking you through how to build your own, he's explaining how debuggers actually work at a high level. I love that. I remember that, didn't Julia Evans do the same program that you did? And didn't she build a Ruby debugger like during that program? Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, she built RBSpy, so a way to spy on your Ruby programs, which mm-hmm. I think is a little less commonly used at the moment. But when it was released, it was like a very novel concept. And my impression was that many, many people were using it at the time. Yeah, I actually wonder what happened to that project. So I'm going to have to link it up in the show notes and kind of check <laughs> in to see what happened. <laughs> it's hard because things change. And so if you aren't actively developing it, like I could see how a debugger could be deprecated pretty quickly. Yeah, she's written a bit about how open source maintenance is definitely for specific people and she was less in love with doing it. She's written a few articles that are pretty compelling stories because I think we always talk about, oh, you should do open source, you should do this. And she kind of tells the narrative, here are the ways I contribute to the community and they don't have to do with open source. Awesome. Well, anything else that you wanted to touch upon from Kagi before we wrap up? I think that's it. Thanks so much for all the questions. I feel like this was very question focused at me and I didn't get a chance to ask you many questions. <laughs> What's I've your been on conference the <laughs> schedule for the rest of the year, Brittany? You know, TBD, I'm not sure. I might make the trip to Rails World in October, but just because I've recently gained the ability to walk again yesterday, I am now allowing myself to actually plan things again. So yeah, we'll see. But you know, like you said, I really like connecting with the community and I really like that hallway track. And so it's good for me to know about which conferences have, have a strong hallway track, but I totally understand why some wouldn't. So all of that is helpful. I've heard the analogy. I mean, TBD, as we're learning more info about it, but I've heard the analogy that Rails World, Rails Conf will be comparable to Ruby Kaigi to Ruby Conf, where the hope for Rails World is that a lot of the technical, how Rails is built conversation can take place there in a similar way to it happening at Ruby Kaigi. I've heard the same thing, especially now that the CFP is out and you can see the different topics that they're looking for. I would definitely say it's very technical on the Rails framework, which yeah. I think is exciting. So we'll see. It would be cool to have a comparable conference for that. I totally agree. I think if you go, I would love to hear about it too. Definitely. Well, especially after you keynote in October, we'll definitely have to catch up and hear about how that went. I am very excited to watch your keynote. As always, Gemma, thanks for stopping over and letting me ask you all these questions. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Have a good rest of your day. You too. Talk soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.